재미와 지식의 오디오라이프 팝빵 On Mondays on Koreascape, the back half of the show is always about the good life, the set of habits, pursuits, bodies of knowledge that we guess might add up to a good life if you chase after your selection of them. An important part of that equation is food and dining out is the classic way to improve your life very quickly. We are here with Matthew Chung, who is a chef and food consultant and food media guru. We're going to fill the rest of the hour by talking about the state of the restaurant Union 2018. Hi, Matthew. Morning, Kurt. This is a topic I love, and I think you love too. I really do. I mean, it's great, especially this time of the year. I mean, there's a reason why all the big awards happen, like in you know the beginning of the next year, because mm. it gives you some time to kind of sit back and get a little bit of perspective. What's paradoxical is that a lot of restaurants complain during the winter that their business slows down considerably, mm-hmm. and then it picks up again. I suppose it has everything to do with people being inclined to go out, but um, winter should be restaurant peak time, shouldn't it? Because it's like retreating indoors and enjoying several hours uh, doing something enjoyable indoors. But yet people just want to kind of clam up during the winter. Well, sure. And actually, you know what? This is a good place to jump right into this because as much as I think people want to go out and feel that kind of co- like cozy glow of a restaurant, at the end of the day, there's a lot of, I think, there's a lot of uh, pressure. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of expense that happens this time of year. So actually this year, for the first uh-huh. time in a while, these end of year parties have right. saw like a pretty sharp decline. Yeah. I mean, there's so much going on, so much other stuff that's occupying your headspace. And then in the, the, the spring and summer, it all eases up. So your mind is free to go out and uh, spend a little money, go on some dates, that kind of stuff. Sure. If times are tough, you know, you know some bad weather outside is only going to exacerbate that. Mm-hmm. All right. So I guess by looking in order to look forward, Let's take a moment and look back. 2017, if I were to pick uh, a topic out of the sky, of course, I would say stuff like craft beer and artisanal uh, beers and alcohols. That was humongous in 2017. Oh, absolutely. And it's one of these things, right, where you, you see this in Korea, where you have a certain trend. And then it'll start to grow over time. And then there becomes this kind of like make or break year where it's like it's either going to be you know, part of the canon Or it's going to be kind of like a one-hit wonder. And a I think, flash in the pan. Exactly. Kind of in 2017, I think, really solidified craft beer as one of the few enduring trends of this past decade. Yeah. Craft beer and kind of the natural complement to craft beer, pizza by the slice. Mm-hmm. Those joints just popped up like popcorn oh, all over Seoul. And you know what? A lot of them are doing really great stuff. Actually, I, um, I have a quote from a friend of mine. Uh, he actually runs one of the food programs for one of the best craft beer uh, okay. was the companies out here. And what he says, what he wants to see for this next year is, in terms of the scene, I'd like to see more place taking the craft from craft beer and applying that to their food programs. Yeah. To understand it not just as a catchphrase, but as an approach to food and beverage. And that's all about the local, the delicious, and the fun. That being said, Korea is a fast learner, and I think we'll see some very exciting things with beer and food pairings over the next few years. I think you're spot on, and your friend is spot on with that. Just a few weeks ago on this program, we had a whole wine and Korean food pairing discussion, Mm -hmm. and one of our team members is big into that. I think you can apply the exact same mentality to, uh, you know, beer. The classic pairing here in Korea for so many years has been food is spicy, Mm -hmm. beer is cold, refreshing, and weak. Mm -hmm. And that's a a wonderful pairing. But there's so much more you can do, right? Absolutely. You know, I've, I've, I've got a uh, couple of other, other buddies at another highly regarded uh, craft brewery. And what they do over at their tap room every single week, they're doing Korean food with craft beer pairings over there. And it's going over phenomenally. 
I need to know where that is after the show. <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> you definitely have to fill mm-hmm. me in on that. Okay. Craft beer and perhaps on the horizon, uh, craft beer pairings with more and more subtle kind of foods that plug right in to the essence of whatever beer you're ordering. Pilsner, hops, IPA, this, that, and the other thing. You know what? I mean, like, I think there are a few like beer flavor profiles that everyone tends to gravitate to, just the same as there, there is with Korean food. But I think what you're starting to see is more pushing of the envelope on both sides. Yeah. All right. And perhaps down the road that'll apply. I know it's already, we've seen green shoots of these expat groups interested in makoli brewing. Mm-hmm. And just so a more expansive, more nuanced food and alcohol pairing landscape in right. Korea is coming about. Absolutely. And you know, with makgeolli too, you know, I think we're going to see another surge of that. What we saw in 2017 is for the first time, these craft makgeollis starting to go into some of the more bigger retail channels, specifically the convenience stores. Yeah. So I have a friend, uh, her name is Ji Sung Chun. She's a Korean liquor sommelier and founder of Soy and Rice. And in terms of what she feels about uh, the kind of burgeoning makgeolli scene going into convenience stores, she says, I think it's great. You know, this certain craft brand going into convenience stores, you know, is sourcing from small breweries. So it it helps local business. And also the taste and quality is better than the usual stuff. Mm -hmm. I hope to see more of a range of Korean drink products at convenience stores and liquor stores. So even though this is a space that she operates in and technically they're competitors, she, you know, wishes nothing but the best because it's kind of a community feeling, you know, you know, a a rising tide raises all ships. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's what the craft beer guys, they all say, you know, I don't see that other craft beer bar down the, the block as my competitor, as my rival. Uh, We're all in this together. It's almost like an artist's collective. And the better the ecosystem gets for all of us, the the better all of us are going to do collectively. Oh, sure. And you know what? They do collaborations all the time, events with each other. So, I mean, it's such a small community that no one could really afford to be cutthroat. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be pushed out. Well, and just staying for a moment on the Makali thing, it's really hard to export across oceans and continents Mm -hmm. because it breaks down, right? But this country is so small and the infrastructure is so excellent that you can literally be drinking a Chola Namdo brewed makgeolli uh, in Pyeongchang or something like that uh, the day after it was packaged because right. everything's so quick. I mean, it's ripe for that kind of distribution for the same reason why app developers love being here in Korea. It's because of the small, very dense, you know, the way, you know, how quickly things travel around here. It's the perfect breeding ground for that. Okay. So why don't we leap into to some of uh, Matthew Chung's predictions for 2018 in terms of uh, what the hottest buzzwords are, and we'll kind of pick those apart. Okay, so the, the I think, buzzword, the hot, uh, the watchword for 2018, I think, is kashimbi. Kashimbi. Yeah, so kashimbi. So as opposed to the term kasongbi, which is kind of applied to the consumer mindset, which basically kind of refers to this idea of, I better get out what I pay for this. Uh-huh. You know, I better get my money's worth. Got it. And so I think it, it's always, ref, you know, ended up in this kind of budget-minded attitude. Kashimbi instead. This is triggering my memory. Yeah, we um, talked about this whole concept. We have mm-hmm. another thing called Generation Now. Mm-hmm. And uh, our contributor for that, Leah, she brought that whole Kashimbi concept in in terms of, you know what, uh, it's kind of like the shim is your heart, right? You're mm-hmm. following your heart. 
more so than you are indexing exact value for money, like you exactly. just said. Exactly. That's, that's spot on. And so it's what it is, is it's acknowledging that some restaurants might cost more than others, but it's also about that intangible benefit you get from that experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's this other term that I'm, I definitely cannot say on the air, but it, <laughs> it kind of refers to the idea of like treating yourself like once in a while, like when the stress, when it's just like all the way up to here, you just got to buy something. Splurge. Exactly. We can say the English term right. splurge. Exactly. You know, I don't care. I, I don't. This is not budgeted for, but I'll figure it out later. Right, right. Okay. And that's uh, part of Kashimbi is going out to these places. So it's not just about um, how much is the Hanu per gram for my budget. It's what's the overall sort of... Uh, kind of experience. Right, right. You know, what's the cultural capital I can get from posting this on my Instagram? Aha. Exactly. You know, how, how great am I going to feel tomorrow when I, you know, find a little piece of kogi stuck in my teeth? I just remember <laughs> that meal I had. The that day. is a very unique way of thinking about it. But I might uh, be doing that right now, actually. <laughs> okay. I, we can file that one under too much information. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, the, the intrinsic, the social capital value of your restaurant experience as immortalized on photo sharing services that is fascinating Mm -hmm. that is fascinating that is a the margin for which people will be willing to spend more because you can say and prove with pictures that i went there Right. And most importantly, it makes you just feel good. You know, these meals, you know, they're, they're an experience and they just take you to another place. And you know what? If I'm having a, you know, if I'm having a bad week, one meal might turn that around. What's interesting. I mean, every place, every country has its strengths and its things that it's lacking. Mm-hmm. When I always, when I come back from the U.S., what, what I'm dying for in Korea, what I notice the lack of is places where you can just kind of chill out, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Western style pub environments where you could even bring like a book or something, slowly drink a pint. You know, you've you've got that a little bit in some of the expat areas. Mm-hmm. But that concept, surely of going by yourself right. and then just chilling out for a while and reading, say, a magazine or something and spending time, you don't really find that in the restaurant space. You find it in the cafe space a lot. Right. And I think that's something that uh, actually as of last year, you're starting to see a lot of that turnaround. Yeah. So it's like a honbap or solo dining. Sure. You know, it's this idea of like eating by yourself. It's starting to become more and more prevalent. And I think one of the reasons why Korean restaurants generally tend to stray away from encouraging this is just because they – Are, one, one thing that I do love about Korean restaurants, and for better or for worse, they are brutally efficient. So, There you go. Right. Yeah. So, it, so it's all about you know, going with what 90% of what your guests are going to want. Uh-huh. And if 90% of your guests, if that doesn't include solo diners, then you're not going to go out of your way to accommodate them. Right. But what we're seeing more and more is this kind of sh- uh, social uh, shift where people are you know, living lifestyles where they're more likely to go out and eat by themselves instead of going to eat with their coworkers or their family at every, you know, at every, every single meal. They're opting to take some of these meals by themselves. And what Uh, what restaurateurs are finding is, is that these people want more than just a fast food experience. So you're starting to see more and more businesses turning around and accommodating solo diners. Mm-hmm. One of the macro themes that I've seen over this, whatever, the last 10 to 12 years here in Korea is that uh, Koreans seem to be willing to welcome a new expat or uh, overseas food trend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... They are applying a, a judgment of authenticity to a degree that they never did in the past. You can get away with less, mm-hmm. I think, at a restaurant in Korea as a restaurateur now than you could perhaps six years ago. Um, you could start 10 years ago, maybe a, an American barbecue joint, mm-hmm. an American southern-style barbecue joint, 
and any any U.S. person, North American person would be going, this really kind of misses the point, right? But now there's real people doing the real thing in the space, and Koreans know the difference big time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are a, there are a lot of operators out there who are really taking pains to create something you know, authentic. And you know, that, you know, th- that word itself is quite loaded. But if we want to talk about something that tastes pretty much like you would get from its origin country, uh-huh. you're finding a lot of really talented chefs and restaurateurs who are able to manage that. And they set the standard. So you know, if they're the originators or if they're one of the first to really do it well, you know, the public will flock to there. And they'll get a taste of what this thing is supposed to taste like. Uh And word travels quickly. And, you know, I think that this is a, you know, it's a cutthroat marketplace where there is not as much room as people think for imposters. Yeah. I mean, either because um, Korean Americans who have been, I'm just using America as an example. It could be European. It could be anywhere. Mm -hmm. But they're coming back and they're bringing that food, as we've seen in some of the barbecue examples. Or Koreans have gone and they've made a truly devoted sort of pilgrimage to someplace like uh, Germany to bake bread or this, that, and the other thing. Or South America to make that uh, perfect whatever. And they're bringing it back to their their home country. They're doing it in such an authentic way. The... um, The barbecue thing was humongous. That's still on the rise in 2018. Yeah, Yeah, so, I mean, barbecue, when it came on the scene, it just absolutely exploded, right? And then I I think what you ended up seeing over... Well, actually, you know what? I've got a line from a good friend of mine. Uh Um, He's who I like to call the Obi-Wan Kenobi of the American barbecue scene. (laughs) And if I... You know, his name's Linus Kim. If I tell you his name, there's no... He's almost synonymous with U.S. barbecue in the country, yeah. So here's his prediction for 2018, and I think he got it on the nose. So... He says that American-style barbecue is going to become more of a fixture in the foreign food scene for this reason. So I think barbecue is holding steady. Not a whole lot of new barbecue joints in Seoul, but I continue to see more barbecue joints opening in secondary markets in Korea. Smaller tourist cities like Yangpyeong and Pyeongtaek and a few places opened this past year on the west side, Digital Media City, as well as Incheon. So I feel barbecue is becoming a real fixture in the foreign cuisine scene. Barbecue is one of the most difficult things to do food-wise. It's up to the dedication and tenacity of the purveyor to keep the quality up and customers coming. Guys like Gus at his barbecue restaurant at Wonju is an example of someone who's leading the local market entirely and going strong. So what he's going to see is this uh, spreading to other cities. You know, of barbecue. And I think once you start seeing that in Korea, once you start seeing a new item really pop up in some of these smaller cities outside of Seoul, that's when you know it's really you know, just gained a you know, tight grip on the market. The hard part about uh, American barbecue is the, managing the sort of supply chain, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like an avocado. There's like about <laughs> four minutes when that avocado is perfectly ripe. And then you're either too, you're wrong or, or you're on the wrong side of it. Uh, these guys, they make these racks of ribs and whatnot. And they have to smoke them and age them, and it takes a ton of time. Um, and you've got to have just the right amount that people want, or it's it might go to waste. So it's a question of gauging that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, with something like that, you know, you you have to ensure that you you sell out all your product, and mm. you know that takes careful planning. That that you know that makes sure you know you have to make sure to understand your market. But most importantly, it's got to be good. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not going to sell out your stock. Partially practical. I mean, if you've got a Korean barbecue restaurant, you can keep sort of the meat in all of its bulk quantities in the freezer or whatever, mm-hmm. or cut it just at the last moment, cook it right on the table. Right. So you have a much more generous window right you there. You have a much bigger window mm-hmm. to sell your stuff. So you said hunbap-type joints are 
starting to appear. I mean, mm. we've seen the gimmicky ones right, right. in various, you know, even in international media, they've featured these little teeny-weeny barbecue plates in front of individual people. Is that what you mean when you say that humbap places are... It's actually something a little bit more subtle, a little bit more invisible. It's more like you, you go to the restaurants you've gone to, you know, that you've gone to for years that you've enjoyed, but they're starting to accommodate the solo diner a little bit more. Uh-huh. So they're starting to break up the larger tables into smaller ones. Right. And I think where you're starting to see this most is in offering sets and, you know, and making it easier for a single diner to be able to try a variety of things, as opposed to before where you might be stuck with trying to eat a dish for four by yourself. Right. Now you might be able to try four different things for a quantity for one. That's interesting. Yeah, certain things you just can't get unless you've got, or in the past you haven't been able to get, unless you've right. got three other people. And I think this, again, this is something that's happening a little bit more behind the scenes, a little bit more invisibly, because you know, a restaurant advertising, we, you know, we accommodate solo diners. It's kind of an awkward brand message to try to get out there. Yeah. But you know, it's one of those things that people are starting to slowly take more and more notice of. And other restaurants are starting to notice that these uh, other restaurants that are accommodating to these solo diners, you're seeing that little uptick in sales. Are there any international food trends just uh, in your personal estimation? I mean, we talked about barbecue, of course. Um, any other ideas, international ideas that you think are going to catch on more in 2018? Well, I think, you know, we have the opposite of barbecue, which is like vegan and vegetarian restaurants. Aha. 2017 was a great year for these restaurants. Okay. You know, and um, I, I think even with continuing rising costs of vegetables here in Korea, I think more than anything else I hear is I, you know, everyone asks me, where can I find a good salad? Ah, okay. Right. And I, I think that it goes a little bit beyond that. I think it goes, it speaks larger to you know, people adopting the overall lifestyle, people trying to incorporate into their own. For, for a lot of different reasons, vegan and vegetarian restaurants are starting to appeal to a lot of consumers, myself included. Sure. You know, I, I, I make it out to one at least, you know, a couple, you know, a couple times a month just because sometimes I'm not in the mood balance to balance it out a little right. bit. Yeah. yeah. You want to get some good vegetables. So a, a, a broader vegan and vegetarian awareness, especially among young people that is a young person thing isn't it it is but i think it's starting to you know i think it's starting to go uh, across the gap a little bit you, you actually this past year there was quite a large vegan festival that happened as well uh, i have a friend uh, her name is mipa she runs a great uh, what is it a uh, vegan restaurant in taiwan yeah she says my prediction for this year is that the trend of plant-based foods will o- will only continue to grow in korea larger already existing businesses will be providing more plant-based options and that newer small vegan businesses will step up in offering a more innovative, upgraded, and polished vegan dining experience. Yeah. And, you know, the first place where I think you can see this is you're starting to see a, a wider variety of produce being available in the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might come at a premium, but the fact is, is that there are enough places that are selling these you know, vegetables that are difficult to kind of sell to any other type of restaurant. Right. But the mere fact that you're starting to see them more and more visible, I think, is indicative of how, you know, the popularity of these vegan and vegetarian restaurants is growing. And a more savvy use of things, grains and things that are kind of easy to store Mm -hmm. and are not necessarily perishable the way like a lot of leafy vegetables are. There's a delivery vegan joint that I use and they make this thing called spicy African peanut stew. Ooh, wee, is that good? You know, I think um, a lot of restaurants of all types, perhaps this is a trend, maybe they'll start doing sort of sets, pre-orderable 
and maybe deliverable sort of, you know, doshiraks that you can take out, bring home, sort of they'll do your cook and freeze for you, that kind of thing. That's absolutely key. I mean, I think in terms of Korea, just because it's so easy to access so many different things, you know, being frictionless, I think is a really big, uh, is, is, it's almost a must nowadays. I mean, uh, you know, this past year, you know, HMR, home meal replacements, or yep. what they call in Korean, p a n w e s i k p a n w e s i k Yeah, it's, it's like half eating out. Ah, that's yeah. interesting. It's the idea of like you buy a kit, you buy actually frozen food got really be, got really good last year. There are a couple of companies. Uh, there's one new prominent one that came out, and I, I honestly I love their stuff. Like their frozen mandus, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and you know, so there's this idea of like being able to. The appeal of panmeshik is is that it costs significantly less than takeout or delivery. And you can, you know, you, you feel like you're cooking something or that you have some modicum of control over what you're eating. Well, that's humongous in the USA right now is mm-hmm. like these delivery boxes right. of ingredients. Is that catching on here? It's that, less so that and more in terms of incorporating things from where you'd find at like uh, department stores and, right. um, and, and hypermarkets. Just because I think it's a little bit trickier doing a mail order option. I know, yeah, I know what you're talking about in the US. I feel like every like radio show and podcast. Every podcast is sponsored by these companies. <laughs> companies right. yeah it's like order your meal and you'll understand you know, even if you can't cook you can yeah. cook this maybe that'll catch who knows my personal passion is um charcuterie and cheese i think Ooh. that is going to come up i got a number for you uh, a buddy of mine he's making some great stuff it's actually uh, it's actually not too far from the studio I really maybe we can hit Ooh, it up after we're going to uh, talk about that i think at some point because at some point on the show I know a couple of people who are really sticking their neck out and doing cheese in Korea, which is by no means a sure thing these days. But, you know, when you're the first pioneer to move it along, kind of like the barbecue dudes were a few years ago or the craft beer dudes, you can reap real rewards, right? Right. And actually, the the dairy in Korea for cheese making, really not bad. It's not great for every single type of cheese. It's not particularly high in butter fat. So Uh you're not going to get like your triple cream uh, cheeses. You're not going to get like a really, really gooey. Like you know, what was it like soft rind like a brie or camembert? But what that lower, but what the fat, uh, what the milk in Korea is really good for is things like a pasta filata cheese. So something like a mozzarella, mozzarella yeah. escamorza, something like that. Just because most of those, they don't contain that much fat. If yeah. they did, they would fall apart. But you want something that has like a, that's a little bit leaner, yeah. and it's got a nice flavor to it. So I know a couple of people out here making cheese both professionally and for fun, and they're making some great stuff. Ooh, we're going to talk what. after the show. Hey, Japan sussed out cheese years ago, and if they can do it, surely Korea is ready to come into its own with cheese. And there's plenty of meat for charcuterie as well. But I guess those might be topics for another day. Uh, it's always exciting to see what kind of risks are being taken on the restaurant scene. And Matthew. I know you're going to be back at some point to fill us in on even more cutting-edge food trends. Thanks so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure.